Yeah, boy. Welcome to Shook Me the Mooney, episode 87. Honestly, we got um, a really good show for you guys. I'm going to discuss the MLB lockout, which seems um, as though we're not getting baseball uh, anytime soon, as they've just announced like they've canceled opening day for this year, or at least the first two opening series of the season. And it's really sad because uh, what, what I've seen on, on the internet, or I fail to realize until I've seen it on the internet, is that this will be the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson um, first playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So if this Jackie Robinson day, which is always a special event all throughout baseball, is missed because of a lockout, it'll be really, really sad because it will be, you know, it should be a, a huge Jackie Robinson day. You know, it, it's always fun to see, you know, the players, you know, all wearing number 42 and, you know, the fanfare that comes with it, you know, celebrating like the player who broke the color barrier and actually opened up an opportunity for a lot of players to uh, take the field. And if, no players are taking a field on April 15th. It's going to be a very sad day. So I'm going to discuss that for a little bit. And of course, we will be wrapping up our our weekly breakdown of Euphoria. Uh, as we've, you know, we actually didn't do last week's episode. Uh, when I watched it, didn't realize, you know, um, it, it was going to be a two-part story. So I thought it would be best if maybe you know just save it watch the concluding episode um which aired this past sunday and do both of them in you know one failed swoop so that's what we're gonna get into later on on the show so spring training has already been postponed you know usually especially when you live in like a cold weather city like myself living up here in new york you know, we kind of look forward to spring training because that means like warm weather is vastly approaching. So you look towards spring training and you watch those spring training games, which are mostly meaningless. Um, and then open day, opening day comes around and that lets you know that summer's around the corner because baseball is in full swing. But this final meeting this week between the MLB um owners and MLB players did not uh lead you know to a fruitful end nor did it leave any room for like optimism because they've already announced that they're going to cancel the first two series of the season so baseball as we know it probably best case scenario won't start until like the second or third week in April so it's really sad, and it seems as though the competitive balance tax is the, uh, or as, you know, in layman's terms, the luxury tax seems to be one of the sticking points along with the arbitration pool, uh, which is something that wasn't in place before, but it's something that would be put in place going forward, which is um, just a pool of how much money each team could spend in arbitration, which is ridiculous because along with that is that the MLB Players Union 
wants players to um, go through the arbitration process a lot quicker. So, you know, guys wouldn't have to wait until uh, three or four years into their career before they start making, you know, actual real money. And along with that, another thing that's a sticking point is what's going to be the minimum, the minimum salary for MLB players. But those numbers for the minimum salary have actually kind of what the MLB players and MLB owners are proposing have been a lot closer. But obviously the other two seems seem a little bit wider. Um, initially, I believe the arbitration pool that the owners propose would be about $20 million. Um, and the MLB players union were looking closer to a hundred million dollars obviously that's a big old gap um obviously they made each made a a little bit of concession with the in their latest proposal with the players offering for it to be uh 85 million dollars but the owners still you know on the lower end of that side with a 30 million dollar offer and then the competitive balance tax um, I believe the MLB owners said they wouldn't lower the current one, but the players union would like for it to be higher, you know, for obvious reasons. If, if teams have a lot more room to spend money without being penalized, it will create higher salaries, possibly create more jobs. And that seems to be something that MLB owners are unwilling to do. News that has come out of this off season outside of the lockout is Derek Jeter about four or five years ago or so was part of a ownership group that bought the Florida Mar- that bought the Miami Marlin- Marlins formerly known as the Florida Marlins and you know Derek Jeter obviously I'm extremely familiar with him seeing him play in person and exorbitant amount of times so I've grown up watching him and I know of him. I've seen him speak and I know his character and winning is extremely important to him. And, you know, it, it goes back to, I forgot, I think it was um, like an interview he did with Steiner Sports where he was asked, like, you know, which loss was worse. I don't know. I can't remember what the examples were. I do know one of them was the 2000 World Series with the, you know, losing to the Diamondbacks, you know, on the very last pitch of the World Series. Or was it the, I believe maybe the the other example was the 2004 ALCS against the Red Sox. And, you know, Derjita gave a response, which was like, why does that matter? And, you know, and the, the person asking the question was like, well, you know, some, one of them had to feel worse than the other. And they're just like, no, they both suck. It's it, losing is losing, you know. And then the, the interviewer went on to say, like, OK, so then what's worse, losing in the World Series or lose or not making a playoffs at all? And it's like losing is losing. Like if you don't win, you lose. It's a failure. And a quote that he that came out after or in his statement, you know, when he um left the Marlins is that he said that the the vision that was, you know, that him and the other owners had spoke or spoke about when buying the team is not the vision that, you know, the other owners have going forward. And, you know, a lot of people, including myself, speculate that that means that, you know, that 
the ownership group was not willing to invest in invest in actual processes that would move them closer to being um, World Series contenders or anything close to that. And I think that's the reason Derek Jeter would, you know, as a person who's, you know, followed Derek Jeter for basically my, my whole life, you know, I, I assume that would be the type of reasoning for him to not want to take part in um, being an owner anymore. I just don't think he would, you know, own a team and not expect to compete on a year-to-year basis and essentially just be in it for the profit. And as we've seen, it looks like a lot of these owners are really in it for the profit. I mean, I tweeted out the other day that a lot of owners apparently have taken the role of the owner from the movie Major League, you know, where this this woman was basically trying to do everything she could to lose and, you know, the players fought against it. And I think that's essentially the the story of the MLB t- lockout where it's just, just players just want to play and be rewarded adequately and I know a lot of people they kind of look at it and they don't want to pick sides or they you know would say like oh the players are being greedy but you know if you think about it like the players they have a lot to lose you're talking about you know 2020 they didn't play a they didn't pay, play a full 162-game um, season. They played 60 games. Last year, luckily, they were able to get 162 games. And uh, this year, they obviously won't get 162 games. So you're talking about these a lot of players probably in their prime. You know, uh, a matter of fact, it really is like players at different levels. You know, players, you know, just making a name for themselves, players – in the prime years of their careers, players, you know, just trying to get their last few seasons in um, that are being affected by this. And, you know, to have two out of the last three years, including this one, um, be seasons that are shortened seasons, you know, really puts a taint on your legacy. And, um, you know, when people look at the record books, you know, these guys not being able to play full seasons because of, because of, you know, things outside of their control, you know, obviously the first time around 2020, it was, you know, something that nobody really had control of, which was, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. But now that, you know, baseball has bounced back from the pandemic, gotten fans back into the stands to have a season where you're literally trying to keep fans out of the stands. Um, it's really, really sad. And, you know, Rob, Rob Manfred has done an awful job as commissioner. I I really don't think he has an affinity for the game of baseball as is played. Obviously, we've seen through some radical rule changes. Um, we've seen through this pandemic. We've seen through his quotes. Um, obviously, the most famous one is you know, calling the World Series trophy or just a piece of junk or a piece of metal or whatever it was he said. Um, Obviously, he doesn't have a respect for the game. And I mean, I I don't want to talk glowingly of Bud Selig, but that's like one thing I think you probably can't even accuse Bud Selig of on what, you know, if you ask Bud Selig or you hear Bud Selig talk, I think he he had as as bad of a commissioner as he was, um, 
at least to me and to many others, he at least you know he had a fondness for the game, and I think um, Rob Manfred doesn't. And the role of com- commissioner of any sport is to basically be a spokesperson for the league and basically just be a representative of the game of baseball, you know, as appointed by the owners. But I think Rob Manfred, for years, I believe he was like the MLB's um, counsel. So he was basically the MLB Major League Baseball's like lawyer. Um, and then obviously rose up to um, deputy commissioner. And eventually, when Seelig retired, became the commissioner of baseball. And he's taken that role as basically a representative, not of Major League Baseball and the game of baseball, but he's basically just a representative of the MLB owners. And it's funny, I, I remember the show, um, Brockmeyer, you know, the final season, it was a fairly recent show, but in the final season, he was like the commissioner of baseball, like, but 10 years from now, so like 2029. And basically baseball was like a novelty sport at that point. It was like, you know, something that you would find on like ESPN at like three o'clock in the morning. It wasn't even like a primetime sport anymore because it had lost so much interest. Um, And to me, under somebody like Rob Manfred, you know, art really might imitate life because I, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, if he's still running things, like that's the route that baseball goes. And, you know, one of the things I think the players conceded on and seems like an inevitability is that the playoffs will be expanding to 14 teams which means seven teams in each league which means just under half of each league the American League and the National League will be making a playoffs from that you could in you know um infer that come August even maybe even late July a lot of teams playoff positioning maybe already settled and in place and there would be no impetus for teams to play hard down the stretch um which is scary and you know I always hear a lot of like old school baseball um players you know talk about the fact that you know even a wild card as it was before the fact that second place teams can win the world series is wrong you know baseball plays the most games out of any sport possibly an entire world in their season. So they always say, you know, after 162 games, you'd have to know who the best team is because they've played each other so many times that, you know, the cream would, you know, rise to the top as Macho Man Randy Savage says. You know, I don't like the idea. I personally, I wish they would scale back the playoffs personally. Uh, I wish, like, it would go back to, at the very least, the pre-wildcard, you know, two uh, division system. You know, maybe now you have eight teams in one division, seven teams in another, in another division, and just the top two teams make it. The other teams, you know, you don't make it. And you know, my the the the, the theory I have on the playoff expansion is that what will happen now is that a lot more, you know, a lot of these owners, they really don't try to win. A lot of these times when these teams are like these, you know, underdog or out of nowhere teams, dark horse teams, a lot of times it's just that 
talent rises above everything and teams catch lightning in a bottle and they make these playoffs runs these owners really don't care whether or not you know a team you know loses 100 games or whether they win more than uh 80 games um they just know they're gonna make some kind of profit off of revenue sharing um if you have a dedicated fan base they know people are still going to be tuning into their regional networks they know people are still going to come out to the games uh etc 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 so they don't really care about winning but now if you expand the playoffs it gives them a lot more room for you know really bad teams to kind of sneak into the playoffs and it seems like oh they're trying and they actually really aren't um, this has really only been like a handful of teams in the history of baseball to be barely over 500 and make the playoffs. And I think there's a reason for that. But, you know, we'll keep watching. Um, you know, I'm a huge Yankee fan and baseball is quite possibly my favorite sport. So if, you know, a summer goes by and they're not playing, I, you know, I really don't know what to do because, uh, it doesn't look like the next season is going to go past uh, April. And even when the Giants come back, it's it, it looks like it's, it's still going to be a rebuilding situation. So I don't know what I'm going to do come, you know, May, June and July for the time being. So hopefully everything works out and these owners could, you know, come to grips and realize that they're, they're doing a lot of harm. And I think, you know, for people to say, like, these owners aren't doing well. I mean, if you, you, this is readily accessible information. Like you could look up MLB franchise values and literally every team is worth more than a billion dollars. And the only team that's not worth a billion dollars, ironically, who we talked about, the Florida, the, the Miami Marlins, they're valued at $990 million. So just under a billion and I don't think these teams' franchises, franchise values would be rising if these owners weren't making any money. That's essentially how business works. If something is profitable, people are going to be willing to pay more. So if these owners are saying they're not making any money, like obviously they're lying or they're over-exaggerating. But we'll keep um, looking forward to it. And looking into it and just, just watching it and um, seeing what goes. I mean, obviously, they've only met like a handful of times since the owners locked the players out. So it's obvious to see which side is serious and which side isn't. All right. Euphoria, the final two episodes of season two. All right. We're going to start off with episode seven, which opened with Overture as a title card. And... This reminded me of, you know, I think a lot of times in like friendships, relationships, most any kind of uh, association you have with another person, you know, there is a, a moment where you grow apart. And I think Lexi like covered this all throughout her play. And another thought I had was, you're the main character in your own story or in your own life and in other people's stories and lives, lives, you're the supporting character at best. And I say at best because I think 
your perception of you and other people's perception of you is, you know, are vastly different. And a lot of times people, you know, reveal what they really think about you. And a lot of times, sometimes you look at yourself and you reveal your perception of yourself starts to change a bit. And, you know, a lot of times, like people's perceptions of you influences the perception of your own self. So and I think that's a theme that this entire show has been um, portraying over the span of both seasons. So, you know, we've, we've got um, Lexi basically stroking a bee's nest. I mean, it's, you know, there wasn't a lot of nuance and um, changing, like, people's names uh, and characters. Like, essentially, everybody looked like the person they were portraying um they dressed like the person they were portraying and these were very autobiographical moments so obviously if you you know have an audience full of people and they don't know what the hell is going on you could get away with a lot but if there are people in our audience that knows what is going on there's very little you could get away with and always you know the thing i love about how the episode was shot was when things happen, you were able to see people's reactions to them, uh, especially Rue's. Rue's reactions were phenomenal, especially when she was like heavily, you know, portrayed in the play. Her character was heavily portrayed from front to back. And I think she, through this play, she, you know, our life that she got to, um, see how important she was to Lexi and how I think her father's death not only affected her, but it affected Lexi through their friendship being, you know, there's a big gap in their friendship being creative because she started, you know, being addicted to drugs and substances. Very much the play, like, remind me of, like, Disney World or any kind of, like, museum where they have, I mean, any type of, like, theme park where they have, like, a show and or even on the rides themselves they would kind of have like the 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 ride operator kind of take these roles and you know kind of act and you know the acting is a little bit campy but you kind of get what they're trying to like portray in it and that's what it kind of reminded me of you know of you know going to disney world and you know being in that waiting area waiting online and then they usher you into the, the these theaters and you watch these little like 20 minute um performances of you know random stuff you know Mickey and Minnie or something like that but it it's it this episode reminded me this play it reminded me of like just the amateurism you know these kids were like high school actors and they didn't know what the hell was going on and that was like another highlight of it that you know the show kind of shows us um the perspective of like this group of friends but what we tend to forget is like it's like an entire like other like it's a it's a school full of people um different people I probably never interacted with Rue and Cassie and Maddie and Lexi and Fez and this person and that person so they really didn't know what the hell was going on they just knew that this play was like entertaining as hell beautiful part of it too was Sue's Alana Ubach. I'm a big fan of Alana Ubach, so 
you got to really see you know it was interesting because I, like i've always said like i know her from like comedies you know um she's like a very like a character actress in a lot of like my favorite comedies so i think like this episode you got to see like i've got to see the alana you back that i'm like used to um that I'm used to seeing that uh, makes me laugh because she was just eating up every single part of this show, even um, Ethan portraying her in the play and, you know, him him being over the top. And I think she, aside from Rue, I think she was the only person that genuinely um, received this play very well. Intermittently, we were seeing Fez getting ready to go to the play and support Lexi, you know, with their little... Um, courtship seemingly because it would never really got like an official title and they never really took their courtship to the next level just yet so it's still in the 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 building stages but as he's getting ready you know Custer comes to the place and already we've seen you know his his um essentially his brother Ashtray basically his enforcer just eyeing Custer and seeing that like something's amiss with him and Faye and you know Faye you know I was I felt like it was some kind of like jealousy towards uh Lexi but I think she just grew a fondness for Fez and just the fact that like he opened his home up to her but she was the one pressing it you know um ironing and um dry cleaning his his uh tuxedo for the night like and it's interesting if you looked at the entire audience at the show, like Fez would have been the most overdressed person by the time he arrived there. So it was like a cute little little moment, him getting dressed and him asking Faye if um, you know, Faye saying like he looked handsome and him asking Faye if like, you know, would someone else find him handsome? And it kind of portrayed uh Maddie and Cassie's friendship and how it came to be uh such as you know maddie coming over and staying from time to time and uh, uh, something i never really got portrayed throughout the last throughout the seasons maddie and lexi because you know i'm pretty sure like all three of them were sleeping in the same room and got a very cute scene with Maddie where um she's doing like Lexi's makeup and she's doing her her eye shit his her her eye lashes or eyes or whatever like making it like hers and you know Lexi's talking about yeah I feel, like I feel silly wearing this and then like Maddie's like you shouldn't and Lexi's like why and, and Maddie's like I you know I used to feel silly too but then I start caring and it was a solid interaction because it kind of just showed like the type of person that Maddie was like, you know, this confidence she had and um this like nurturing vibe to her. Like it just to me, it, I, I really like when I talk to other people, I watch the show. I'm like, so Maddie was like the good guy all along because it seems like she was really like this like good hearted person. You know, that part of her was never really portrayed, you know, and I, I talked about how you know, the scene with her and Jules in front of the bowling alley, I'm like, yo, that part of Maddie we never get to see. All we see is, you know, the superficial, very reputation-oriented person, and we never get to see, like, this 
you know, sensitive side of her. And I think we finally got to see it to, you know, and I, I was, I speculated when we would see it again and we finally saw it in the play and it really just showed how betrayed she was by this whole thing with Cassie and not, you know, she really did care about Cassie as a friend. And I think what was revealed in the play was that she was a lot more devastated, not by the fact that Cassie was sleeping with Nate, but the fact that, or that Nate was sleeping with somebody else and it happened to be Cassie. I think she felt literally betrayed that that person was, you know, somebody she had this fondness for. And that was very real and very relatable. And it also showed like the first time that Rue did drugs. And I think this was like pre her father passing away where Fez first, you know, sold her and Lexi weed and it's interesting because I actually showed that like him and Lexi actually had like an interaction before um the New Year's Eve party and it showed the difference in Rue's reaction to the weed and Lexi's reaction to the weed because it pushed away bad thoughts for Rue but it brought them up for Lexi it, it made Lexi start to think of her father who had like an an abuse, um, a substance abuse issue with drugs and alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. It even showed, you know, scenes of him picking Cassie and Lexi up while under the influence and, you know, Lexi being like terrified of like, you know, if we go in this car with our dad, like we might die because he's not like of sound mind. And since Rue has gotten clean, like it seemed like she's, you know, avoided Jules and Jules has been avoiding her. I guess she feels like a little guilty because in uh, revealing to Leslie that she was doing drugs, um, she kind of feels like she betrayed, you know, this person that she loves, which is tough. But, you know, it was something that for Rue's own well-being, like, had to be done. And then they had, like, a scene with Leslie and Rue uh, just... I, I'm assuming post, you know, while like Ruth's sober, where they're just, you know, hanging out, watching TV. And it's like a nice little mother daughter scene where Leslie reveals that like Gia is doing like bad in school and she's starting to develop some bad habits, um, possibly from neglect, possibly lashing out because of um, the things going on with Rue. And Leslie basically like says to her, you know, listen, like, I hope you keep this like soberness like up because if it, if 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 you fall off the wagon again, I can't deal with you anymore. Like if you're gonna kill yourself, that's gonna be on you. Like I have another daughter in Gia, and it, it really showed that Gia matters, which is something that I said last week when um or or a couple of weeks ago where Ali basically went out of his way to point out to Gia that. She 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 holds no um, obligation to basically suppress all the stuff that's going around her. Like she has she she matters. Like her life matters, and her thoughts and her feelings, everything, all of that matters. And I think Leslie, through that, was recognizing that impossibly trying to save one daughter she could lose another and she did not want to make that sacrifice and she just let it be known to Rue. so much so that she says if i have to choose losing one daughter or two i'm a fight to save her and Rue understood because she simply responded that's fair 
Uh, essentially, this like episode was just like you know the play in general was like a big ass mirror being, um, showing the reflections of everybody, showing everybody you know themselves from, you know, an observer's perspective. Yeah, and I think like we something I, I've been saying for weeks. I mean, like Cassie is like just as bad as Nate in this whole thing because. Sure, Nate might have seduced her, but she's a willing participant. She's independent. She has, she's of independent mind. So she made the decision to betray her friendship with Maddie. And, you know, it's especially cruel when we've seen the um, kind of like the parallel scene from the first episode of the season where Maddie was banging on her door as they were having sex to the scene when Maddie's pounding on. Cassie's bathroom door at their house after um, Rue revealed that her and they have been sleeping together. And, you know, they have this big old, like, homoerotic uh, sequence in the gym where they played, um, like, Bonnie McFarlane's I Need a Hero. And that's the part of the play that I finally got to Nate, where he, he had enough. And uh you know all these visuals in his head start popping up and one of the visuals was like him and his father Kyle like having sex and you know it kind of came and went it was like a flash and that was one of the things that like kind of stuck in my mind as I was watching I'm like what is that about and it's crazy uh because like it's literally the one part of the play that I got like a standing ovation like everyone loved it everyone in the audience loved it except for Nate possibly Lexi too but the only reason she didn't like it is because of Nate's reaction so I'm gonna sound what I'm saying it's the one part where the audience loved every bit of it and he stormed out and Cassie went like following him and like he tore into her and he started talking about, man, I, that scene was, like, so homophobic. And it's like, Nate, when the hell did you care about, like, LGBT people? <laughs> like, when was your last time um, at a Pride March? But he was clearly upset, and he switched up and broke up with Cassie and basically told her to get out of his house. And it just kind of shows, I think the theme of their whole relationship throughout the season was, you know, those two basically deserved each other in the end. And that's what I gathered by the end of this entire season. And I think it hit everyone whom I thought it would hit, except for Kat. I mean, Kat was also, that was one of the things that people talked about on Twitter and social media is just that even in this freaking play, like Kat was forgotten. And that was basically how, like, that seventh episode wrapped up. I thought it was great. Um, And in hindsight, obviously, you're going to see when I start talking about episode eight, me personally, I feel like if they would have ended on that seventh episode, that would have been a fantastic finale. It was great. I loved it. I was cheering, laughing, crying, all of that stuff when watching it. It was such a phenomenal episode that... And I don't know if maybe this is that had some influence on why episode eight just didn't really like hit for me. I wasn't a fan. I thought it it did too much. Uh, it tried to stuff a lot into it that, you know, I, I think like I, I, I tweeted, I said, like, 
Euphoria went the let's tie up all the plot threads in one episode route instead of the, you know, let's have a good story and end on a strong note, end on a strong note um, route, which is usually the route that's, you know, received a lot better by critics. But it did start off strong. I love like the little, um, the phone conversations between Lexi and Fez and, you know, they're talking about like, you know, do you want kids? Do you want to get married? Da, 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 da. And then Fez reveals like, you know, he want to live on a farm. And why do you want to live on a farm? Oh, it reminds me of Little House on a Prairie. And it was just so like random. It was cute. And then it followed on with, you know, Cassie, you know, last week's episode left us wondering what Cassie would do next. And Cassie just basically stormed the stage and Sue had to run after her and get her. And eventually, like, Maddie jumps on stage and starts chasing after her. Cat chases after Maddie. And, you know, I, was, I, I thought all of those were great. And I think, like, the episode was full of great individual moments, but it didn't have a cohesive, great story. And that's where they kind of, like, lost me. You know, Elliot, it, it showed um, Rue trying to patch things up with the different people. And it's ironic because she said, like, you know, she's on our apologies tour and she felt that, like, Elliot was the only person I needed to apologize to her. But she did make um, a little bit of an admission. Uh, he was right in saying that, the, you know, the two of them were bad for each other. So she did recognize that. And then he sang a song to her that was like, it seemed like it was like six or seven minutes long, which was about six or seven minutes, like too much. And it, yeah, it was just plain ridiculous. And I just felt like it could have used more of Maddie beating up Cassie than Elliot singing. And the aftermath of like Nate storming off was that he revealed he goes to Cal's like um construction company where Cal's like hold up with all these different people. It was like, you know, a couple of gay guys, uh like a girl or whatever. And he was just chilling, having like a good ass time. And then Nate rolls in and he's like walks in there with a gun and a flash drive and you know, um, all the people, all of Cal's friends, like, clear out, and he essentially calls the cops on his father and basically tells him, you know, I have all this stuff on you. Um, you're not going to get this happy ending that you thought you would by just, you know, ruining everybody's lives, um, as far as, you know, the Jacobs family. Um, and in it, it, it reveals something I think a lot of people speculated, but the fact that Nate was actually traumatized by what he saw on the tapes. And he actually, from the time he was 11 years old and he saw those tapes, he actually had nightmares of Cal having sex with him like those tapes, which is why he kept trying to suppress them. And which is why, or which is what he rationalized the reason why he suppressed them and the reason why he goes out and hurts other people because he's haunted by by these tapes and that's probably why in the seventh episode when they showed that little flash of him having sex with Cal 
during the gym sequence of the play, you know, perhaps it, it you know, that resurfaced in his head. And he, you know, I've, I've been saying for weeks, he didn't really, you didn't know whether or not he would act on, you know, finally um, bringing his father's indiscretions to light. And he finally acted, you know, that was a little push that, you know, finally made him act on it. And one of the things I, you know, I, my re- reaction was that, oh, doesn't this kind of undo what he did for Jules? But then I remember, I think he, according to him, he gave her the only copy of the one uh, tape that had her on it. So that, you know, wasn't the case. You know, other interesting parts, Lexi getting the strength to continue to play. You know, we thought like it would have just ended right then and there. But, you know, the, the, the show went on and she made her mom proud. Uh, you know, Suze was like, this is my daughter did this. Like, she was like really, really proud, even though on the other side, her other daughter was basically embarrassed by it. And she came out, gave like a speech and she dedicated the show to Fez, which I thought was really, really nice, especially what was actually going on with Fez, which was um, the feds and the police like busting on his door because um, Ashray got up and stabbed Custer in the neck and killed them all while Custer had the, the his phone bugged for the police to listen to the conversation and you know Faye was basically giving Ashray and Fez like an, a way out because she kept on pressing Custer to say no like it wasn't Fez that killed Mouse it was Lori you know who I've been calling Karen for the last couple of weeks so I apologize for that but and Custer keep pushing back and as Custer's pushing back Ashley gets up realizes that you know something's amiss and stabs him in the neck and instantly this tense scene uh becomes really like erratic because you know Fez realizes like Ashley just killed the guy as police are listening to him uh doing it so he sends, he tells Ashray, you know, he tries to cover for Ashray and he takes the knife and he says he's going to take the fall for it because he's just a kid. And he rationalizes it by saying that even if they pin that shit on Ashray, that Fez would end up going to jail even longer anyway. So he might as well just let Fez take the fall. And Ashray just, you know, these two basically grew up as brothers. He just refused to mess up his life and one like fan theory I, I, I seen on Twitter was that Fez and Lexi were basically talking to each other on speaker and perhaps, you know, Ashray being this observant person heard all of this and knew that Fez wanted a life for himself, thought it'd be best if like he did something to, protect Fez at least one final act and you know it was very much like you know uh Scarface like you know the the, the chainsaw scene where Ashray runs grabs all the guns holds up in a bathroom lets the feds come in and you know they have this whole shootout and in the end Ashray died and I've been telling people that even before the seventh episode, I'd seen a picture of Fez on the ground looking like he was like bleeding. And 
I was like, oh man, like I hope they're not gonna kill him off. And you know, over the span of the weeks, when especially when in episode seven we didn't see anything like that, I surmised that it was gonna be Ashray and not Fez. So uh, I call that one. I thought Rue was great. She wasn't embarrassed by her story being told on like the others in the play. You know, I think to to see the things you've done to people and the effect you've had on people is a lot different than being told about them. And I think that's what Rue, especially in her sober state, kind of woke her up and, and helped her realize, like, you know, things are a lot bigger than just her. And, you know, it ended off with like a really, really like cute scene with Lexi and Rue where Rue says to her, like, I don't, just so you know, if everyone else hates this play, I want you to know that I loved it because she need like Rue said she needed to see that. So that was really nice. And Rue, Rue did her part when it was um, when the play stopped after the whole Cassie and and all of that stuff happened. She leaned back in the chair and I didn't know what she was going to do, but she started like a Lexi chant and then everybody in the auditorium started chanting for Lexi and like I said Lexi came back and continued the show she had the strength to carry on the show and that's because you know the people in the audience were chanting her name so she knew she she was doing something she knew she was doing something profound and all in all you know like I said I, I didn't really like the episode as a whole but I did think it had very it had great parts in between. Um, it had very great individual parts, fascinating individual parts. Just all put together, it just kind of didn't make sense. I mean, as I said, if they would have ended the episode on or to end the season on episode seven, just as it was with, you know, Cassie breathing on that glass, you know, the anticipation for the next season would be really high. And, you know, the first episode with, you know, Cassie storming the stage and her and Maddie having a fight, possibly stretching that out, would have been great for a season three premiere. But clearly they have bigger designs. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people assume that the next season is not probably going to happen for a while. But I think due to the last monologue with Rue when she um, exited the school and went outside, she talked about you know she stayed school she stayed sober for the remaining school year um that would give notice the fact that they kind of gloss over the final months or whatever of whatever school year it is that the next season is going to start with some kind of passage of time obviously last season ended around like christmas time and then this season started off at new year so it was basically perhaps like a week in between season one and season two. I think there's going to be a bigger gap between season two and season three. But overall, it was great. I mean, episode eight, for as much as I disliked it, is, you know, for a show like this, even when it's pretty bad, it's still pretty good. But, you know, the, the, my critique on episode eight is I felt like it was like, you know, I, as a person, I like Oreos. I like bacon cheeseburgers. I like chunky monkey ice cream but if you put all three of those things together like it would taste awful uh even though they're all my favorite things and i think that's what this episode did it had a lot of great individual moments 
um it didn't feel like a slog it just feel felt kind of underwhelming and perhaps the, the episode before did that to me and you know that's our wrap up for euphoria so if you've been listening and you didn't want to hear about euphoria you won't hear about it anymore <laughs> at least not until the next season starts or until something else happens maybe even like a spinoff who knows all right award of the week for episode 87 is gonna go to president joseph biden and he's getting the award of the week for making me wonder what the hell i voted for because i watched the state of the union some not all but one of the things that stuck out to me was him saying um talking about the police and saying like they need to not defund the police they need to fund the police and i'm like buddy did summer like 2020 like not happen like there were literally people marching outside during a pandemic risking their health due to the fact of a lot of the bullshit that cops were doing when they were killing unarmed black people such as brianna taylor george floyd you know just to name a few going as far back as eric garner you know that's definitely not what I voted for. And then seeing like Kamala Harris, like giving a standing ovation right behind of him, you know, it made me wonder what I voted for. And then another thing that came out yesterday was the fact that the U.S. was going to send about $64 billion in aid to the Ukraine, to the Ukraine, which um, surprises me because Joe Biden ran on his campaign that he was going to forgive a significant amount of student loan debt which he hasn't and it makes me wonder uh, you know if you have like 64 billion would it be 64 billion dollars to send to the ukraine not saying that they might not need it because obviously the stuff going on with russia invading them and you know all that stuff they need as much help as they can get but at the end of the day like you know we vote and pay taxes to help fix things in this country and obviously a lot of things in this country are still uh broken one you know one of those things being the police and another thing being healthcare, another thing being you know student loan debt and you know if you have 64 billion dollars for russia i mean i think you have 64 billion dollars to help you know people not have to worry about paying back student loans um whether they've uh, graduated college unable to graduate college or plan to go to college you know just relieving us of that you know the our, our government should be doing that and you know as a person who did vote for joe biden and kamala harris you know it's very disappointing to see you know him basically get a standing ovation from you know possibly even republicans for saying that they don't need to defund the police, they need to raise police funding, you know, is disheartening to me. And I've stated that I will not be voting again until that guy in Louisiana who's running for um, some kind of seat in Louisiana and in his campaign video, he was smoking weed, smoking like a big eyes blunt. I'm like, I'm not voting again until that guy's running. So that is award of the week. Final thoughts for this week, episode 87. Baseball, we want it, we need it, it needs to come back. There's really no reason for this. And I think like the owners really rushed into it and they've been operating in bad faith because they were um the first to lock out the players. This is not a player strike. The players didn't say, Oh, we're not gonna play. 
uh, they just knew that the collective bargaining agreement was going to come up and, you know, they were going to fight like hell to, uh, you know, keep as much from the players as they possibly could. And, you know, I just hope that it, it, it's, it gets a resolution soon. You know, springtime, summertime is, is baseball time. And for the owners to keep that away from us is just awful. And I think as a fan, if you're looking at this and siding with the owners, I mean, if you think about it, really, the owners are basically telling you they could do with or without your support. They don't care about it either way. You know, and another thing about it is when they weren't able to reach any progress after their meeting the other day, Rob Manfred had a whole press conference where he was basically smiling and kind of like jovial when he was delivering the news that they were going to cancel the first two series of the season. You know, no man who really wants to see baseball um, or loves the game of baseball and doesn't want to keep it away from um, its fans wouldn't be smiling during that press conference. But then when the MLB players had their press conferences, the MLB network cut away from it. ESPN, who has a contract with MLB, cut away from it. So they weren't even giving the players their own platform to speak. And, you know, it's going to get worse until it gets better. But I'm going to keep following because I do have faith that a 2022 baseball season will happen um euphoria uh such a great eight episodes um obviously i've said the the eighth episode was kind of underwhelming and disappointing but as an individual episode wasn't terrible or um a chore to watch so I'm curious to see between the passage of time between this season and next season to see what, you know, um, you know, casting is being made or, you know, if the writing will be changed, they bring on new directors and who knows uh, between the next season and the end of this season, you know, a lot of these actors on this show have much bigger profile and have grown outside of euphoria so who knows if you know a lot of these faces we might not see or we might see a lot uh less frequently than we have these past two seasons but that just shows the um shows what they accomplished with this show in just creating this story that gets people so captivated every um week so we'll keep an eye out for that and of course, please, if you haven't, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out all of our great videos on YouTube. Obviously, I haven't had a lot of new stuff out on there, but uh, remembering Ivan Reitman will be out at some point pretty soon, so keep on a lookout for that. As always, Sugar Reviews the Brews every week. And um, just subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll get notifications, and you'll know that something new dropped but till next week this has been episode 87 of shug me the mooney shug me the mooney shug me the mooney